0: All right, hey, we're actually starting a new sermon series today uh, called Whole Transformation. And we're gonna talk and investigate what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus, what does it mean for us to be wholly transformed? Not just partially, and in fact, one of the critiques that I think many people from outside the church have towards Christians is how it's so easy for Christians to compartmentalize their lives. In fact, there's this word that Christians are often pegged with, which I think is honestly very accurate at times. It's the word hypocrite. (laughs) Because what happens in hypocrisy is I'm not fully integrated in, the way that I'm living out what I say I believe. And uh, really what I thought we would do uh, in the next three weeks is really investigate what does it mean for us to experience whole transformation? What does that look like? Uh, The passage that was read for us, check it out, when Jesus asked about what it means to, like how do you sum up Everything that this faith thing is all about. Look at what Jesus says. He says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them, of all the commandments, of all the ways in which we've been taught about what it means to follow after God, what is the most important? And the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He makes this statement. It actually echoes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is the Shema that Jewish communities often orient their lives around. And look at what he says to sum up what this is all about. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, With everything that you have, will you wholly give yourselves to loving God? Uh, The second is this love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Uh, now, the way that we're going to break up over these next weeks, uh, the breakdown, I should say, not break up. We're not breaking up. Uh, but the way that we're going to break down this series is this. We're going to talk about the head, uh, as well as the heart, as well as hands. What does it look like for us when it comes to whole transformation? What does it mean to have our head or our minds kind of renewed, as well as our hearts, as well as our hands, and the way that we live out this thing that we call faith? Um, now, this idea of living out kind of our head, our mind, that uh, our intellect is not something that we park at the door when it comes to faith. But instead, our mind is to be engaged because uh, the reality is that Christian faith is actually a faith that believes in truth, that there is a truth. Now, check out what Jesus himself says in John chapter 14. When he talks about who he himself is, look at what he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now here's the thing. Then, if Christianity is based on a truth, then it means then that what we believe about who God is. And again, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. (laughs) Again, you get the sneak peek into what Christians believe about what do we believe about propositional truth. We believe that truth. It very much is part of what Christians believe, that it's true. It's not like we're willingly trying to follow lies. And if it's true, then it makes sense that we would begin to reason together. Now, check out in the scriptures what it says about reasoning together. It constantly uses these words to talk about the way that we approach faith or what we believe in. So check this out. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come now and let us reason together. Uh, Did you notice that? Uh, now, constantly throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures would talk about getting together to reason together. In other words, it's not like you park your, your, your minds at the door, your intellect at the door, but instead, together, we're, we're talking, we're discussing, we're reasoning together. In the book of Acts, this word is also regularly used. The Apostle Paul, who's one of kind of the, the founders of the Christian movement, the Apostle Paul would constantly be using this word. Um, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the Mark place day by day and those who happen to be there. At least 10 different times this word to reason. It's the same word that we get dialogue from. Paul is someone who's constantly reasoning. Why? Because he believes it to be true. Um, uh, there's another moment in when Paul is actually writing to the church in Corinth. He's writing to the church in Corinth and he's talking about what, like, the reason why truth is so important, especially the historical truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. So, check us out 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look at what it says. Paul, he's writing and he's trying to explain why it's so significant that, that Jesus is historically true. Not that he's some figment of the imagination, but that he's historically true. Check this out. If Christ has not been raised, and he's saying raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. There, there you have it. He basically says, listen, if this Jesus person wasn't real, then I, there's no reason why I should even be writing this to you, because everything that I'm doing is useless. And would really be a waste of your time and mine. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, and Christ has not been raised eas- either. And if Christ has not historically, objectively been raised, that this is a historic, objective truth. If that's the case, then what? Your faith is futile. And you're still in your sins. Then Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, do you see what he's saying? He's not holding anything back. He's saying logically, if this objectively is not true, that this is who Jesus was and what he did, then guess what? This is all useless. Why am I even writing this letter? You and I are the most to be pitied people that were following this lie. In other words, what Paul is basically saying is that Christianity is based on an objective truth that lies beyond what me personally might think about what is true or whatever else. It's actually based on a, on a, on a belief that God is objectively true. So here's the point. The point is basically this. Christianity is not simply just a feel-good religion. It's not like, oh, we follow this because it feels good, because honestly, it is really hot in here. And it uh, does not feel good at times. Uh, but instead, we believe it because it purports to actually be true. And if it's, it's true, then it changes everything. Everything. Because no matter what might be happening in the circumstances in my life, no matter the ebbs and flows of history and where history takes us and where, you know, the rise, the rise and fall of empires and movements, if Christianity is objectively true, even if I'm not a Christian, I need to somehow wrestle with whether or not it really is objectively true. Now, that's why Paul, when he writes this letter to Rome, check out what he writes about approaching God with our minds or our heads. Look at this. He says, uh, oh, and this is why Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's based on truth. And this truth then is supposed to unlock a certain kind of freedom for each and every one of us. Now, Romans chapter 12, if we can go to that passage. He says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your, your mind. Don't just park your brains at the door. Instead, your mind, your head, your intellect. Bring it to the table and let that be transformed. Because when, you're, when that's transformed, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When our minds have been transformed on truths, then that can actually change how we live our day-to-day lives. Now, here's the thing, though. If that's true, we are invited then to allow truth to change us. Can we go to the next slide? Um, There are different ways, patterns of the world that continue to inform what our minds are fixed on and the things that we think about as we approach the world. Uh, Some of those things I just put up here, culture and media the culture, or maybe it's social media, or it's the media around us. It's con- we are constantly being inundated with messages about what is true, what we should believe, what we should give our lives to. Many of us have probably been shaped by a lot of those things. We've been inculturated with this thirst for, it's all about making as much money as possible. It's all about living a comfortable life. It's all about the culture and the media and TikTok and Instagram and whatever else begins to feed into everything that we think about what is important, what is good, what is beautiful, what is meaningful. And there's a way that culture and media tells us this is what's true and this is what you should also give your life to. But not only that, it's also our families of origin Our families of origin have had these ways of imbuing us with different beliefs about this is what's important. It's important for you to get good grades, to make a lot of money so that you can give that money back to your parent. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Or whatever else it might be, right? All these stories that we've received. I mean, it's amazing. Like, there are some things. I was sharing this in the first service. When I was uh, a kid, um, my parents told me that if I left the fan on when I went to sleep, I would suffocate and die. Uh, I, I know this sounds kind of silly, but like, like there was—I just was told that constantly. Don't leave the fan on. If you leave the fan on, you're going to die. Now, later, I found out that in a lot of first-generation Korean immigrant families, like that was a story that was constantly told. So I, I found that a bunch of my generation Korean-American immigrants, like we all—anyone know this story about the fan? Wow, there we go. We've got a few hands admitting. Yes, this fan thing, right? Like. Um, here's a little hint, I found out it's not true. If you leave the fan on, it's actually very pleasant. <laughs> but somehow, right, like there's ways, like my family, but like even to this day, there's something like in my body where like if I leave the fan on, there's like this anxiety, oh no, if I fall asleep, let me, let me just quickly turn this fan off right now. Now, it's amazing how that happens, right? Like these things that we purport to be true, <laughs> these beliefs, I know a little bit of a strange example there, but they they end up kind of, inculcating our minds and our thoughts, and we begin to behave in certain ways because of these kinds of things. Our family of origin have ways of imbuing us with certain values that are probably more important than even the way that our, shape, our faith shapes our values and what we deem to be important. But not only that, it's also our woundedness. If some of us grew up in experiences or we had experiences where we've been wounded by people or things or experiences, those wounds end up shaping the way that we go about the world. Some of you, perhaps, maybe you've had a really awful experience with church communities, and uh, maybe one of, it's been like the hardest thing even to step back into a church community. And the only reason why you step back into this one is maybe because there's more people at the second service than the 10 a.m. service or something. There's a way you can be a bit more anonymous here or something like that. You see, there's all sorts of ways that wounds also begin to inform the way that we think about certain things. Now, in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's actually this phrase that's often used, and it's used whenever someone is about to go back into relapse um, or whenever they're tempted in such a way, like if they're on this road towards sobriety from whatever it might be, narcotics, alcoholics, uh, alcoholism, whatever it might be, um, once they start to go down a path a sponsor will talk with the person that they're sponsoring. And we'll we'll use this phrase often. It's the phrase stinking thinking. Turn to your neighbor and say stinking thinking. Stinking thinking basically means like, wow, like your mind, your mind is going down a path right now. It's just not true. There's faulty thinking that's you're starting to think and feel. So here, here's an example of what a stinking thinking might look like, right? Like all of a sudden, I, I'm on this path towards sobriety, but then I start to think, man, what's the point of all this? Sure, I get sober, but honestly, my family will still reject me. No one ever loved me in my family anyways. Gosh, I, like why do I even, I can't even believe that I'm on this, but I know they all tell me this is good for me, but when did they ever look out for me? you know what, I'm just going to start living my own life because that's, that, that's what I've known. No one's been there for me anyways. Let me just pursue my own thing. And a sponsor will say, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I think that might be some stinking thinking going on. Like, of what you're thinking and believing about yourself and about your family And you can see how relapse happens and it's because I begin to start thinking a certain narrative, a faulty thinking, a faulty scenario that ends up not really being grounded in truth. Now, but this faulty thinking happens all the time. Now, I listed some stinking thinking below that I think gets at some of the stinking thinking that you and I probably experience at different times. And again, it can come from the culture and from the media. It can come from our family of origin. It can come from our woundedness. come from our own proclivities towards being a broken, sinful, fallen people. Uh, Of course, God has created us all to be made in his image and beautiful and kind, and yet we've all been marred by sin and brokenness. And so as a result, this stinking thinking starts to happen, and I begin to begin to, to live in such a manner where I'm not following truth. I'm following this faulty line of thinking. One such example is this all-or-nothing thinking. F- for example, I can't trust and It's either everything or nothing. So for instance, like my wife, she says to me, she says, hey, Drew, you know, what I'm thinking is, you know, during our Sabbath, which is Saturday, right, like Friday night to Saturday night, during our Sabbath, you know, I just need some, I need at least three to four hours by myself just to be uh, apart from you and the kids, just for me to get some time of silence and solitude on my own, okay? Now, all of a sudden, I hear those words, and immediately I'm like, what, you don't like us? You don't, you want to, you want to, you disappointed in me? You want to leave me? I can't believe it. Like, we created this family together, and you're abandoning this family? <laughs> now, do you see what happened there? Like, all of a sudden, there's these stories that kind of, like, immediately, based on some of my woundedness, some of my own family of worry, like, families always stick together, we do everything together, da 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 like, there's all sorts of, all my wife is asking for is some peace and quiet from me. And yet, here I am, and I've, I've concocted this whole story where it's basically like, I can't believe it. You, you want to leave me, and you want to you just want me to be a single parent here. Like, like, all of a sudden, things go from all or nothing. Now, I know that's kind of somewhat of a silly example, but in many ways, some of us have this all or nothing thinking. In fact, some of you, when it comes to the things that's impacting your life right now, there's this all or nothing thinking, right? You're going through a conflict with someone, and a friend has, you're in a conflict because they have a disagreement with you, and you're basically like, you know what? Forget it. I, I knew you never wanted to be friends with me from the, from the start. It's like, no, I just, I just think that, you know, chocolate ice cream is better than vanilla. <laughs> it's interesting how that happens, right? This all or nothing thinking, that's stinking thinking. Not only all or nothing thinking, but how about taking things personally? For example, you always say it's my fault. Or when I take things personally, right? Tina asks me one day, she says, oh, did you remember to feed or to pack Avery's lunch? She's six years old. Did you remember to pack her lunch? And she makes that comment, and I say to her, I'm like, what, you think that I'm that irresponsible? Why did you even marry me? Right? Like, and she's like, whoa, no, I was just asking if she was gonna have her lunch. But what happens there when I start to think take things personally? I've taken things in such a manner because of the story that I'm telling myself. My wife, why would she ask this question? She's asking this question because she believes this negative thing about me. And it's just like my dad who, when, when I was growing up, my dad would constantly be critiquing about every single little thing, didn't think that I was a responsible person at all because I was the youngest of four. And now all of a sudden, this whole story has emerged of faulty thinking that is nowhere Aligned with truth, but instead it's down this really weird rabbit hole, and my poor wife is getting the brunt of this. Do you see how this happens on a micro level? Now, you can imagine how this happens on a macro level as well when it comes to truth and the capriciousness of our moods and how we take things and the stinking thinking that inhabits our minds. Uh, Or the things will never change narrative. Things will never change. Maybe if you think about even the way that you approach your life and maybe the big things that are approaching your life right now and you're just like, you know what? Bad things always happen to me. Always happen to me. Things will never change in my life. And maybe you're someone who that's been your experience. Your experience has been bad things happen and the way that you perceive the world and about God and everything else is that bad things always happen to me. It's like, really, like all the time? Yes, every single time. Oh, by the way, there's a free ice cream cone at uh, Dunkin' Donuts that you can go get as well. And you know, like, it's, it's weird how sometimes we get into this all or nothing thinking. We start thinking things will never change for me. Nothing ever good happens to me. And we start using words like always and never. And here's the thing. Most of us are imbued and we are swimming. In stinking thinking, and it affects our relationships, it affects our moods. Some of us, we've been in a season of depression, and it's like, things will never change. Things will never get better. Well, what if, what if that belief was couched and steeped in stinking thinking? Not what is true. And you see, when Paul is basically saying, be not yeah, or don't be uh, conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It matters so much what you and I put our minds and our thoughts to. And that's why the Apostle Paul, check out what he writes in the book of Philippians. Look at what he writes to what we are to do with our minds, our heads. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Set your mind on those things, not on the capricious nature of things. Now, here's the thing then, right? If we're supposed to set it on truth, uh, can we go to the next slide? Truth, if we set our minds on what is objectively true, here's what we can say about God. And again, you don't even have to be a Christian here to believe this about truth. If truth is truth, truth is timeless. In other words, what was true 100 years ago is the same that is true today. Truth is universal. What's true in South Africa is the same as what's true right here in New York City. And and truth must be transcendent. It must be beyond human capriciousness. And here's the thing about what Christians believe, right? Christians believe that this truth exists that is timeless, transcendent, and universal. Now, Christians believe that there is something that's absolutely objectively true, and that's who God is. We do not believe, however, that, if we go to the next slide, we do not believe in absolute knowledge. So in other words, I, as someone who's someone of faith, Hopefully, I believe that there is this objective truth apart from me, that whatever happens in my life, this truth does not change. It is there and it is firm, but I don't have absolute knowledge. I don't know everything about this objective truth, but I know enough to say, I'm going to trust this. Now, this is where the word faith comes in. So if we could go to the next slide. Uh, see, no human being has absolute knowledge. Even if you're not a Christian here, you would probably be willing to admit, that's true, none of us have absolute knowledge. None of us are omniscient. Therefore, all of us, when we live our lives, we live with a certain amount of faith or belief. The question for you and for me and what, whoever, from whatever religious background or irreligious background is this, who or what is the object of your faith? Because if none of us have absolute knowledge, all of us are living with certain kind of stories or truths or beliefs that we believe to be true. What are those stories? Where do they come from? The story of, oh, you have to be beautiful and well put together to be someone who's valuable. The story of you have to be rich or you have to marry rich so that you can be sustained and secure. The story of the more money you make is a direct reflection on how well worth you are or your worth as a human being. See, there are all sorts of stories that we begin to buy into, different truths. And the question for me and for you and for all of us is who or what is your mind set to? What is the object of your faith? There's a movement nowadays, this movement called mindfulness. What is mindfulness? It's to center our minds. So that we can be at peace. But the question is, what are you sending your, setting your minds on? Are you setting your mind on, oh, uh, you know what, my object of faith is the government? said no one ever. Uh, that, that's not to say, don't please vote on Tuesday, everyone. We're praying for the election and everything else. But you and I have also experienced, right? The, the hope that we have that once our political party gets in power, then things will forever change. I mean, all of us have probably experienced the disappointment of that. Why? Because government can be so capricious. Or we, our hope is your faith, is the object of your faith in the stock market. And of course, over the last 18 months, some of us are like, no, it's not at all. Is it in the economy? Is it in your boss? Is it in your company? Is it in other people? Or perhaps some of us are basically like, when it comes to mindfulness, you know what I'll center on? The object of my faith is myself. If I can just become one with myself. But here's the thing about me, you, government, everything else. I mean, isn't it true that whatever thing that we try to put our minds to or put the mindfulness to, they're not objectively true. Instead, they end up being incredibly capricious. They go up and down based on the winds of how I'm feeling or how I'm doing. And as a result, it's really difficult for me, from my own personal vantage point, to be able to muster up the kind of rootedness and security that I need. And so this is why the Apostle Paul says, see, whatever is true, whatever is objectively true, and the task of the Christian then is to then on an objective truth that we believe to be true. Will you put the object of your faith? Will God become the object of your faith? If we could go to the next slide. Um, here's what William Lane Craig, from his book, uh, Reasonable Faith, look at what he writes. And he's an apologist out in California. He says, people who simply ride the roller coaster of emotional experience are cheating themselves out of a deeper and richer Christian faith by neglecting the intellectual side of the faith. Uh, They know little of the riches of deep understanding of Christian truth, of the confidence inspired by the discovery that one's faith is logical and fits the facts of experience, and of the stability brought to one's life by the conviction that one's life or one's faith is objectively true. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, now, here's the great comfort of the Christian faith. If we believe it to be objectively true that this is who Jesus is and what he did, And if this objective truth is unchanging through the winds and the waves and the capriciousness of you and me and how the Knicks are doing, what ends up happening? There's a rootedness, there's a security that I feel because this objective truth is something that I can continue to have be the object of my faith. But if the object of my faith is something entirely different, it's myself. It's how well I do in my company. How much money I make. Whether or not this person requites my love, then what ends up happening? Then my sense of security and my sense of rootedness is all over the place. Why? Because that's just how the world is sometimes. But what if the invitation for each one of us was instead to have the object of our faith Be one, not just out of pure emotion and how this makes me feel ecstatic about it, but instead, what if my rootedness was found on what is objectively true? That is Jesus and who he is. Now, notice when Jesus, when he talks about being the truth, check out what he says. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say, listen, these propositional doctrines that Christians believe that is the truth. (laughs) He doesn't say, these commandments, these are the truth. No, he says as a person, he says, I am the way and the truth. And so if anyone has been searching for what is true, that North Star, the object of my faith, the thing that I can count on in the winds and waves of life, that I can basically put my money on and say that is what is true, if you've been searching for that, don't just look at these doctrines. Get to know Jesus. Jesus who claims as a person to be the actual embodiment of what is true. Get to know him. And even if you're someone who's like, well, I don't believe it or I don't want to believe it. Well, if he's making this truth claim about who he is, wouldn't you want to investigate it? Instead of being willfully ignorant, here Jesus is claiming to be this objective truth which truth that affects my life and your life and the world's life, wouldn't you want to get to know this Jesus? At least to investigate who is this Jesus and what does he have to say about life? And is it true, objectively true? Does it describe the reality that I'm in and that I'm facing? But here's the thing, you and I know this. Like the intellect is just not enough. I can know all day long, You know, whether something is objectively true or not, but whether it actually changes me and transforms me is an altogether different story. Because it's not only about is God objectively true, but I think the question that each one of us faces is God also objectively loving? Because he can be true all day long, but it doesn't affect me because I know that God is removed and dispassionate for my life. But is it true that perhaps this same God, objectively, is also a God who loves you and is for you and who is with you? It's amazing how that works, huh? Like, it's not only about is he true, but is he kind? And maybe some of us have had experiences of God and said like, actually, honestly, the experiences of my life, the pain, the difficulty that I go through, makes me really doubt whether God is good and kind. And this is what's so startling about why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life because I want to show you whether or not God is not only objectively true, but whether God is objectively loving. And here's what Jesus would do. Jesus would end up going and dying on a cross. Why? To demonstrate to me and to you how deeply he loves us and cares for us and as a loving father would trade his life for yours. And if there's ever a moment in your life and in mine where we might doubt his goodness, he'd be able to say, look at my, my scars on my hands and my feet, how deeply I've been committed to you. This is why the book of Romans, when the apostle Paul teaches, he says this phrase, he says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? If this God who did not spare his own son, but instead gave his son up for us all. If this God is for us, who can be against us? If this God has shown his commitment of love to you and me, then whatever you might be going through in your relationships right now, the challenge right now of singleness or a breakup or whatever else, whatever you might be going through with your future and the cloudiness and the murkiness of your future, whatever you might be going through when it comes to your finances, the anxieties around your finances. Like he says, don't you see if this God who is so deeply committed to you that would, he would freely give up his own life for you. He is for you. He's not only objectively true, but he's objectively loving. And the question for me and for you is will you, whatever your mind has been set on, will you now Set your mind on this God, the one who is for you. And if he is for us, then who or what can be against us?